Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. everybody and welcome to this episode. This is a part of our careers in peacebuilding series and this episode is dedicated to diversity and inclusion in Geneva, which is an enormous topic. My name is Annika Erickson Pearson and I am a graduate of the Graduate Institute for International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. I am also a community manager at the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform, which is the facilitating organization of Geneva Peace Week. Hi, I'm Madhumita, uh, Madhumita Varma, and I'm also pursuing a master's in international affairs at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. I'm originally from India. Diversity and inclusion, uh, as we'll continue to go into throughout this series, is more than just a namesake. Uh, we know across the world there's a lot of almost greenwashing towards this. Um, and in Geneva, quite frankly, there's a lot of geographic diversity, right, with the United Nations and all the different member states. Uh, but the question is whether it is really meaningful and whether there are actually opportunities available to a wide variety of people coming from different backgrounds, be they different locations, be they different socioeconomic statuses, kind of all of these different um, identities that we carry. So this episode matters so much. Uh, we know, and we just want to start the episode also by acknowledging that the system is really made for and by wealthy Western and predominantly white countries who drew the lines on maps across the world decades ago. Uh, the system uh, of many of the careers we're discussing in peacebuilding folds into development and folds into the humanitarian world. And that system, as we also know, is problematic in and of itself. Uh, the vocabulary around third world or developing countries or the global south implies a, a divide of experience. And that divide is very apparent today in the hiring practices that we see in Geneva. So we just wanted to go straight into this. Um, it, it's a really important conversation to have when we talk about hiring, that there is not the same opportunity available to everyone across the world. And instead of sort of avoiding the question, we wanted to go straight into it. Uh, before I hand it over to my co-host here, I also want to just take a minute to acknowledge my own identity and my own privileges and blind spots. I am a white woman from the United States and I carry an enormous amount of privilege and, and just want to, to really acknowledge that and, and acknowledge the fact that I, there is still so much that I am I'm learning in this conversation and I'm really humbled to, to be able to, to, to learn from the experiences of, of people who take the time and, and labor to share. Madmita, over to you. 
Hi, uh, thank you so much, Anika, for this wonderful opportunity. And as you said, it's a very important issue to discuss. And so I would like to firstly begin by acknowledging that I am also very privileged and very grateful to be here and to be part of the series. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. So uh, as part of this episode, we will be interviewing Erhan Voral, who is a protection officer at the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, as well as Natalia Escobar, who is a project coordinator at DCAF, which is the Geneva Center for Security Sector Governance. Manmita hosted both of those conversations, so I'll turn it back over to her. Yeah. I would like to mention that although we talk about the need for more diversity and inclusion in international organizations and in the third sector, I must acknowledge that a lot of the questions and answers in these interviews do not address all forms of privilege and the lack thereof. Nonetheless, we hope that this podcast will be a useful resource and will provide some hope to some who would like to pursue a career in international and third sectors. Our first interview here is with Erhan. I am pleased to say that today we are joined by Erhan Vural. Erhan currently works for the International Organization for Migration, IOM, as a protection officer. He is from Turkey and started his career back in his home country during the beginning of the Syrian crisis in 2013. He first worked for the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, and then joined IOM, with whom he has been working for the last five years. A warm welcome to you, Erhan, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Matimita, for hosting me and for this warm welcome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, today, I will be asking you a few questions about navigating a career at IOM. Firstly, could you please tell us a bit about your background, what you studied, your first job, and what was your path to working at the IOM office in Geneva? All right, yes, sure. So, um, as you said, I am from Turkey and uh, I studied my degrees, my first degrees in Turkey. Uh, my educational background is in uh, international relations and I did also a double major in sociology. These were all uh, back um, at Middle East Technical University in the capital of Turkey in Ankara. And after my undergraduate degrees, I went on studying a master's degree in human rights uh, at London School of Economics at LSE in the UK. Um, and Right after, I would say, yeah, right after my uh, master's degree, I went back to Turkey and I started looking for jobs. It wasn't so, so well planned, but I, I applied for a couple of jobs and one of them was with uh, the UNHCR, UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Mm -hmm. And it was back in, as you said, in back in 2013, and that was... Uh, relatively the beginning of the Syria war. So mm -hmm. I first um, started working uh, for them in the field because uh, back then and still um, there were refugees coming to Turkey, there were refugee camps. And so I started working as a field um, assistant 
mainly being responsible going to the um, camps, trying to provide kind of technical support to the Turkish authorities who were um, running. Um, I did that position and I changed job within, like change roles, let's say, within UNHCR. Mm-hmm. And I worked for them for one and a half years. Um, and after that, um, I joined um, IOM, the International Organization for Migration. Um, all these were in, in Turkey, in the same place, actually, in a city called Gaziantep, which was um, on the border with Syria. So I was always working in the same place, but just changed um, the organization. Mm-hmm. And with IOM, I did a um, couple of different uh, positions as well. Um, because I was based in my country and I was working in my country, so obviously I started as a national staff. Mm-hmm. And then um, I moved into different roles uh, within IOM. Um, I was first a program assistant, then I became a, a national protection officer. And then for the last three years, now I'm working as a protection officer here in Geneva in the headquarters. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's a very interesting background. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences, Erhan. Um, Shall we move to the next question? Um, Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, What kind of skills and experiences are most sought after at IOM and UNHCR? And what would you suggest is the best way to develop those skills and experiences? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in terms of maybe the young friends listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. I would assume most of them are going to be more like at entry level or maybe just one, two years into their careers mm-hmm. and trying to look for opportunities. Um, I would say at the entry level, when you are looking for a job or when you're having an interview, nobody actually expects you to know everything in detail 100%. Mm-hmm. But it is rather a matter of um, you having uh, the potential or the background um, um, to be able to do or to learn um, a project or a job or a role um, in a short time and, and continue. So I think the educational background is obviously important because in in areas like humanitarian or peace building or human rights or um, other areas, um, obviously related educational background is is important, mm-hmm. and that is important because um, if you are able to understand um, basically how the interstate. Um, relations do work and if you can understand um, some kind of um, if you would have like a political awareness um, and can learn um, about um, like the conflicts going around in the world um, or new dynamics that are emerging etc which you can have an, a lot of idea through your studies I think mm-hmm. that that is important to have just um, the beginning mm. and then um, and then the rest is going to really depend on the specific job or specific agency that you would really um, work on so um, I would say there are certain skills that you're going to be learning while during your studies basically things like that can be transferred mm. and like um, basically reporting or being a, a quick learner 
and trying to adapt or adjust to a new environment, trying being able to work with diff- people from different cultures. These are soft skills that you can learn and you can transfer, basically. Um, in terms of how to experience them, I mean, studies are already, I think, um, a good way of um, doing it. Mm-hmm. And the rest will mostly be, I think, um, practicing. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's very good to know. Uh, thank you, Rehan. Um, so while we're still speaking about skills, um, I would like to ask how important are language skills, particularly the human languages, and how important are these language skills for those who hope to work at the IOM headquarters in Geneva? Mm-hmm. Um, I think any language spoken is important. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the UN has five official languages and sometimes um, it also depends on the agency. By the way, for example, in IOM, we have three official languages, English, Spanish and French. We don't have the five, okay. uh, six, sorry, uh, unlike the other agencies. Um, so in terms of job applications, I think that would depend on different agencies like in UNHCR. They have a little a bit of a different approach that they ask people to speak at least two official UN languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in IOM, um, that is different. I would say it is mostly related to uh, the position that you are going to be uh, doing. Obviously, for Latin America or some parts of uh, some countries in Africa, uh, French or Spanish would be required. But if it is not something that is required during the implementation of your Um, daily work and if let's say English would be fine mm. to do your job uh, then um, you can still um, have the opportunity to do such a job so um, languages in terms of official languages it is not always a requirement but as I said of course if you would work in um, in let's say, uh, Colombia, obviously, you, you will be expected to speak Spanish. And sometimes there could be other languages that might be required um, as well that uh, are not the official language. For example, if you would work in Iraq and if you speak Arabic, obviously, um, this is a very good advantage. Or in some positions, it might be um, a requirement. So in that respect, I think it really depends on which country you're working in and, and agencies' policies, they also change. But I would say any language spoken really matters. Just um, some of the languages being official for UN makes it a little bit different, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but I would suggest like local languages, if there are languages that are spoken in, in your country that you know or you, you need to develop, just I think any language would uh, be an added value. So, so uh, that being said, do you think, uh, say for example, national staff who hope to work at the uh, headquarters, for example, uh, do you think for um, they would need to speak French? <laughs> I think it would be a great advantage if they do, mm. uh, but if they don't, it doesn't mean that they're not going to get any job uh, in the headquarters because uh, most some of the job can also be done only in English. 
Okay. Um, French would be required, for example, if there is support needed or a training in a specific country where French is spoken and where the local staff also speaks uh, French, uh, then yes, uh, there you would need French. But it doesn't mean um, everywhere. So it is a big advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in terms of whether in, it's being um, compulsory or being a gatekeeper, I wouldn't say so. It really depends on, on the position or the project that you are um, working on. Right. For, so for the national staff, um, yeah, again, it's an advantage, but um, the languages that the national uh, staff would speak already would also uh, make a good um, advantage for them. Right. Yeah, so I assume uh, if you're trying to navigate between positions uh, in the UN system, uh, then it really uh, makes a difference to, to actually speak uh, one of the UN languages, right? Obviously, obviously. I think that that is the logic behind for some agencies uh, making it compulsory for staff to speak like two UN official languages. Okay. Um, the logic is that so that they can be mobile, um, as much as possible. So if they need to move to other countries, that they have uh, language skills. Uh, but then there comes the point, like UN official languages are obviously like Russian, uh, French, um, English, yeah. um, Chinese, um, Arabic, yeah. Spanish. Um, so I think the tricky point is that, so if none of those languages are your mother tongue, that means you should always learn two foreign languages. Mm -hmm. But if one of them is your mother tongue and you learn another, just one foreign language, then it kind of becomes enough and okay. So, um, so that some countries, if you're not a native speaker of any of them, that means you need to learn two foreign languages, which I'm not sure um, if it is um, fair enough, um, I have to say. Yes, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, speaking of which, um, what do you think can be done to improve diversity in the UN system? Um, I think in terms of the diversity, yeah, there, there are certain well-known facts for the UN system. For instance, yes, um, there are a growing number of, um, in terms of gender equality, uh, there might be certain steps taken and you can see more and more women are given more opportunities, for instance. But then the tricky point is that um, the higher you go in terms of the positions, then the gender imbalance comes back. So meaning that the mm -hmm. higher positions get, then you have more men than women. Mm -hmm. And obviously it has a historical background, etc. And, and you can also see in the UN system, there are certain uh, countries or nationalities are more represented than the others. Yeah. Um, these are facts. These are well-known facts. Yeah. So I think in order to tackle this, uh, one of the things that can be done is a little bit more maybe transparency in recruitment processes. Mm -hmm. I think that should be given. The second is, um, so in order to bring more, more diversity, I think we need more targeted action. It is not like you're going to put up a vacancy notice and expect that... Uh, somebody who didn't have the same opportunities in country X yes. compared to someone else who has been living in a country where opportunities were 
um, you know, all there, you, you can't expect those to be to uh, to be equal to apply to a job. Obviously, mm -hmm. you need to target um, either certain countries or certain backgrounds. So it, it should be targeted programs that can only develop more uh, diversity within the UN system. And for instance, one of the ways of getting into the UN system is doing an internship. But if you consider Geneva, um, I think I would never be able to, as a student, move to Geneva, uh, do an unpaid internship, pay at the same time for the costs here. Uh, which is the case for a lot of people. Um, therefore, so these kind of entry uh, points, I think, should be more developed and um, people should be given more opportunities yeah. by targeting, really, the people, by, by attracting people who otherwise wouldn't be able to do it. Right. There is no way, there is no way out. Yeah. Yeah, so then there are multiple points here then... Uh with regard to diversity and inclusion. So it's not only about uh, fair internships, um, but also uh, if we consider, for example, the Young Professionals Program, uh, where the government of uh, the respective country has to pay for that position. And so when you end up in a situation where, you know, your government has never paid for that, that position, or it's just not able to, you know, um, then that again is an another impediment. Um, and uh, again, with the languages here, uh, like you said, uh, it's uh, difficult for people who have to learn two foreign languages to be considered for a position. So that already, um, because it's a barrier. Yes, it's a barrier. So it, it already takes quite a lot of time, effort, uh, and, you know, resources to learn just one foreign language, uh, let alone two, you know. And um, yeah. and then it, when you are being considered for a position, uh, obviously someone who was, by virtue of their background, who is more fluent in that language would be considered. Um, and so would you say, uh, at least with uh, regard to the language, barrier would you say for example you know um so as you said uh targeted action uh so language courses for example that are provided and in a sense where a foreign language is not considered to be an impediment when uh, considering applications you know um if that yeah. makes sense yeah, yeah. One way of doing it, I think in the system, there are also uh, like courses that you can attend yeah. after yeah. learning, uh, um, like after entering to a position, there are sometimes UN uh, language courses that you can register. Yes. Yeah, this is always um, uh, the option. Uh, I think the, the concern here is is it being a requirement at the entry level. Yes. So maybe the agencies could be a little bit more flexible especially if it is a second foreign language, like it can still be a requirement to speak at some point, but maybe um, at the entry level, a basic level or commitment that you will, you're going to learn later, uh, maybe could be um, a flexibility that the organizations can consider, I would say. Yes. 
Um, uh, but the language is also not the only thing that determines for a person to work or not. It is one of the factors, obviously. Yes, yes of course. Yeah, because you mentioned uh, in the beginning the the ability to learn. So those are a lot of uh, soft skills that you develop during your education and throughout your experiences, as you mentioned. So those are also important, right? Exactly, definitely, yeah. definitely. Uh, all right, uh, thank you for answering that question. Um, and so let's move to the next part. Um, so what changes have you noticed in your sector and in recruitment practices? Um, I mean, I work in migration and obviously I started, as I said, I started in 2013 and now it's 2020 and a lot of things, especially in 2020, has happened. Mm -hmm. um, so the dynamics, I think dynamics of the work or social phenomenon changes a lot and it changed in, in the previous years also and it is a continuous uh, process, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the issue of migration, the way how people migrate, technology being involved more and more, um, the aspect of climate change um, yeah. are all things that has really um, changed throughout the time, which, which also translates in, in terms of our daily work that we need. Um, so you, you need new projects, you need new approaches, so you need new uh, um, skills and human resources to be able to um, deal with it. I uh, read somewhere that I think in, um, I don't want to give numbers because mm. it's going to be misleading, but at some point, like by 2015, um, a good number of uh, the uh, work skill is going to be composed of the millennials, meaning that people who are um, uh, grown up with with technology being present in their lives. So um, the 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 world is kind of shifting. The world is changing, and, and so as uh, the human resources, there are new skills that are required when it comes to uh, recruitment. Um, in terms of changes that I realized is um, uh, sometimes I think like um, there are certain new roles uh, that didn't exist before mm -hmm. and uh, these kind of uh, new positions requires uh, new skills, meaning um, let let for example the whole um, story behind social media obviously it affects the UN world and humanitarian world as well yeah. in terms of not only how you communicate your work but also in terms of how you work with uh, the people that are affected with refugees with migrants yeah. so these are kind of the new um, areas that are emerging um, as part of uh, um, the overall changes that are happening uh, and we are all trying to um, uh, keep up with that. So, um, I mean, if you ask me whether this really changed the way we recruit people, I would say no. Mm. But obviously it changed um, the, the um, problems and it changed um, the type of the people that uh, we would be looking for. But in terms of recruitment, I think it would be more or less not very big changes for the process. 
Okay, so what would you say are some uh, skills that will be considered um, crucial or essential for for the next uh, few few years? Um, I think with with twenty twenty we learned that I think it's an important word and. Um, being able to adjust, being able to adapt, I think is a key skill. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure um, if it is something that you can learn at school, but it is something more you can practice throughout, I guess. So, mm -hmm. um, and in, in our work, both in peace building, in humanitarian or human rights area, in every single context, in every single country, um, everything will be different. So, able to arrive at a place, learn the dynamics, uh, get familiar with the culture, real differences, mm. and try to still uh, do a job that is new to you and learn. So it is a lot of learning. So you should, I think one should be open to new things and um, changes. One should have the mindset um, uh, to be able to adapt, um, um, as I said. So these are very soft um, skills that one can um, develop, I guess, over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and always be, um, be a learner, like be a quick learner and never, never think that, you know, you're done because all the time everything is going to be a bit different. So in terms of um, these kind of... Um, Specific skills, obviously, I mean, we've already mentioned um, speaking a language mm. and etc. Uh, but I would highlight uh, the notion of really being able to, being open to changes, right. new things um, and adventures. <laughs> right. Uh, just sort of adding to that, what do you um, think about digital skills? Because you mentioned... Uh, that now we live in an era where their social media has a lot of influence on our lives. Um, and particularly with uh, international organizations as well, it does affect um, the work that you do. And so what does that mean for um, um, new sort of uh, projects or opportunities that are opening up where uh, digital skills might be needed? Um, I think... Um... So digital skills is from now on uh, required uh, for everybody. So you could mm -hmm. be a project manager and your job might be just drafting a proposal and looking into budget and trying to follow up how the project is implemented. So your, your job might not necessarily have directly something to do on social media specifically, mm -hmm. but you should still uh, keep up uh, with whatever development is going on because it is also changing a lot. Mm -hmm. There are, for instance, certain um, applications or new social media platforms that are emerging and these are used by people, although if you yourself as an individual might not be necessarily interested in, I think we should always be aware of what is going on Mm. Not to a level that you're going to master every single social media tool or an application, but I think um, somehow keep up with 
technological um, changes is required. I think it's very important mm-hmm. um, to know. Um, often in, in the offices, you can see um, that, um, I hope I say it without any you know, age-based discrimination, but obviously mm-hmm. there are differences between the millennials in the office and the other generations, I would yeah. say, when it comes to being familiar uh, with with the new technology. So mm-hmm. at some point, it is really hard to keep up. Um, for me as well, I mean, uh, there are certain things that I've never used and I, I don't know, but I feel like you should have the basic understanding or knowledge of what those new tools are, who use it, uh, what it brings, why people use it. So, mm-hmm. like, keep up with um, uh, whatever is being developed in terms of technology. I think that is, uh, as I said before, this is also part of the adoption and yeah. uh, and being able to adjust. You know, you should be open to uh, whatever is being developed out there. You don't have to be an expert, but you should know, you should have a basic understanding of those new technologies. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're right about that. Um, And uh, yeah, we're just uh, wrapping up at this point. Uh, Mm -hmm. But as we do, um, and you know, uh, I think you've already answered this, but if there is one takeaway you could give to um, the graduates and young professionals who are pursuing a career in your field, um, mm-hmm. what would that be? Oh, just one? <laughs> or, I mean, if, well, multiple is also fine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. I'll, I will say one thing, but I'm going to detail why I say it. Yes. Um, yeah. the, the, the big message I would like to give to young friends is that uh, there is no formula. Mm-hmm. So there is n- no formula in terms of how you can get to a place, how you can develop your career, etc., etc. So w- what I have been telling to you in through my story is just an example. It mm-hmm. is not that if you try to follow up exactly the same steps, I'm not sure where you're going to arrive or maybe you will be in a different place. Maybe, you know, it's not going to be your dream, etc. So mm-hmm. all why I want to underline is is that there it is not a formula. Everybody's um, um, career path or story is going to be unique um, in that sense. So um, in that process, I remember like when I was applying for jobs, I see it is a hard period because it, it it comes with a lot of uncertainties. It is a period where you, before you're a student, so there is a path that is always defined. Mm-hmm. And, and at some point you finish it and you're now out in life and there are 100 things, 1,000 things that you can go to. Mm-hmm. And then you start seeing like your friends are starting one by one, you know, getting jobs and they seem to be happy, all that. So this period will be will have a lot of uncertainty for some of us mm. but clearly not maybe for all of us mm. so one of the pieces i would say to young friends is that don't compare yourself with anybody and don't feel like you are behind there's nothing to be behind after you know like you're not behind everybody is on a journey everybody is trying to solve you know find solutions so you're just one of them so I know it is going to be sometimes hard, but it is it is a period that's going to be over um, at some point. So uh, in terms of uh, 
obviously, I mean, when you finish a degree and you want to pursue a job, what you do is to apply, you know, like you apply to, I don't know, sometimes 100 jobs and wish that some of them is going to come back positive. Mm. I would say be brave also, um, because yes, I can hear talk about my experience for like two hours, but you going and trying it is different. Mm -hmm. So if you get any opportunity that sounds like okay to you in terms of what you uh, wanted to always say, it might not be your dream job. It mm -hmm. might not be, you know, like something that you were always looking for, which is fine. You should just take it and you should just experience it and see if it is something for you or not. If it's not something for you, at least you're going to learn what you don't want and so that you can continue with another experience. But you can, you can never know before trying. So I would say be brave, you know, if there is... And you're like kind of young enough so you can move to another country, you can move to another city. Mm -hmm. So don't be very... Uh, you Be flexible in that. So go and try. Uh, and later on, you can always do those um, changes. Um, one last thing maybe I can say yes. is um, try to, yeah, obviously try to talk to people, try to see if there is somebody who inspires you or mm. it could be a role model, you know, like somebody who you think um, has done some some experience or studies or has been to this place, did this job that, you know, makes you excited. So yeah. which can give you some ideas and you can talk to those people and try to have kind of a role model in your mind. I had that when I first started doing my first job and I think I really liked having one. Mm -hmm. It really it directs you to a certain direction and helps you. But this idea of having a role model could be also on the other way around, meaning that look also for look out also for people who you don't want to be. <laughs> If I can say that. So obviously there are going to be some people who are inspiring. It's not because those people are bad or they're not, you know, it's just because then which will also tell you what you don't want to be. So try to also look for people who uh, you are not so inspired and try to understand why not. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this will, this can help. Yeah. That is great advice and it's really reassuring to hear it from you. Uh, so thank you so much, Erhan, for taking the time to give us such valuable advice. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Matsumita. I really enjoyed this talk and I hope, I don't know if it, you know, helps any um, young friends out there listening or, you know, giving some ideas, inspiration. I would be more than happy if it serves the purpose. Yes, I think uh, you have really inspired a lot of people out there. Um, so thank you again and thank you all for tuning in. Yeah, thank you very much. Have a nice day. Yeah. Hey listeners, this is your trusty co-host Annika chiming in here. Next, you'll hear the interview with Natalia Escobar from DCAF. Hello and welcome. I'm Madhumita Varma. I am pleased to say that today we are joined by Natalia Escobar. Natalia is currently project coordinator in the Latin America and Caribbean unit 
at the Geneva Center for Security Sector Governance, DCAF. She has over 15 years of experience in institutional strengthening, security sector governance, multi-stakeholder initiatives, and sustainable development. Her portfolio includes organizations such as the Inter-American Development Bank, the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, and the World Bank, as well as government institutions like the Presidency of the Republic of Colombia. Prior to joining DCAF, she was in charge of coordinating interagency teams working on post-conflict transition plans for 40 municipalities in Colombia and led the assessment of the institutional changes required for implementing the Colombian policy of territorial peace. She was also an advisor to the Director General of the Department of Social Prosperity, the Colombian government agency responsible for the country's socio-economic development. In that capacity, she formulated public policies and drafted bills such as the Bill on Public-Private Partnerships. She was responsible for coordinating projects across different organizations and ensuring the strategic alignment with partners ranging from ministries to local governments to multilateral organizations. She has also supported the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights with inputs for the reports on corporate human rights due diligence and on public procurement and human rights. Natalia holds an MSc in Management and Strategy from the London School of Economics, LSE. Her background is in economics and she holds a master's degree in Business and Administration from Universidad Nacional de Colombia. A warm welcome to you, Natalia, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation and many thanks for the introduction. Thank you. Um, today, I will be asking you a few questions about navigating a career in security sector governance. Firstly, could you please tell us a bit about your path to working at DCAF office in Geneva? Well, my path, uh, my path has been about conviction. I work for DCAF because I am convinced that uh, security is essential to overcome social challenges and achieve peace and development. I'm from Colombia, so I know very, very firsthand the impact of governance and security on the well-being of a country. And I, I think that the firm belief that my job is meaningful has been uh, essential in my, my career. When I started, when I was younger, I decided to study economics. And then I got a master's degree in business administration. And after getting those degrees, I worked for about uh, 10 years. And then I decided to go to the UK so I got a Shivinin scholarship, which is um, UK's government's uh, global scholarship, specifically from the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And then I, I got a master's degree, a master's degree in management and strategy from the London School of Economics. Um, but coming back to my first job, um, I started working for a research center 
are the research center for development on the Colombia's National University, which was the university where I studied first. And then I was working on projects for uh, major's offices and other agencies in charge of uh, grand infrastructure and public service concessions. And um, there I had the chance to understand the uh, complex, link, complex links and uh, interrelations between public and private sectors by uh, means such as concession contracts, uh, shared funding schemes and uh, tax taxation. Um, later, working as a consultant for organizations such as the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank and um, the United Nations Development Program, um, this sort of holistic approach uh, to development grew stronger uh, in me and uh, helped me uh, reinforce my previous beliefs. Um, however, I would say that the place where I had the greatest opportunity to develop my uh, sensitivity was a Colombian consultancy firm where I, I was working for about uh, seven years or so as a consultant and then uh, as a project leader. There, I was uh, able to have direct contact with uh, communities and uh, also have the opportunity to lead teams. I was involved in projects uh, ranging from national security and defense related issues to grow strategies for corporate groups. Um, when I was working there, I, I had to deal with uh, plethora of issues, uh, including uh, higher education policies, uh, regional development and strategic planning. But the most outstanding project I was part of was a partnership with the US Agency for International Development, the USAID, um, because uh, in this project and uh, as a strategy for conflict resolution, um, the Colombian government decided to accompany uh, military efforts to complement better military actions with uh, greater efforts in uh, the socioeconomic and institutional domains. Um, within this framework, we formulate a transition strategy uh, for uh, seven, seven conflict-affected uh, regions in the country. Uh, that was more than 40 municipalities were, uh, that were selected by well, like criteria related to strategic uh, location and uh, social conditions and socioeconomic conditions. So that was a great opportunity, not only to know better my country, but also to really get into um, the issues that affect people. Um, after working in that uh, set of projects that I was describing, I uh, worked directly for the Colombian government for about two years. I was 
working as a policy advisor to the Director General of the Department of uh, Social Prosperity, which is the Colombian government agency responsible for the country's uh, socioeconomic development. There, I have the opportunity to help um, set up a partnership between the Colombian government and the national banks to expand uh, financial services to remote areas. Um, the partnership was part of the financial inclusion policy that I have designed it and resulted in access to financial service of about of more than 2 million people. I uh, had also the opportunity there to uh, draft the bills on public-private uh, partnerships and uh, financial inclusion, as I said. Um, after that, I, I had some uh, mandates as a consultant and supported the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights with uh, inputs for the reports on corporate human rights due diligence and uh, other reports on uh, public procurement and human rights. <clears throat> then I joined uh, DCAF and uh, well, this is where I am currently working. Wow, that was honestly amazing to hear. Uh, your background is incredible and honestly sounds very inspiring. <laughs> um, I, I also like the fact that you, you mentioned how diverse your background was and that you actually spent a lot of time in Colombia itself. So it's, it's fascinating to hear. Um, that being said, um, um, I was wondering... Uh, what kind of uh, skills and experiences are most sought after at your organization? And what would you suggest is the best way to develop those skills and experiences? Well, I would say that uh, the set of uh, skills uh, very much depends on the specific role. However, I, I think there are some uh, cross-cutting skills, if you will, that are important. First, that uh, comes to my mind is project management. If I think of my career, almost every assignment I have been involved has taken the shape of a project. So being able to deal, to, to deal with a project in uh, its different stages and dimensions is important. And in that regard, project formulation, monitoring and evaluation skills are, in my opinion, very useful. Uh, second skill I can, I can think uh, of is uh, communication. As a young professional, you can be plenty of ideas, but it's essential you are able to get across your message in a clear and concise way. That applies for verbal and uh, written communication. And next, I would say that the basic uh, skills of finance. And uh, I am not thinking of anything very complex here, but every single project uh, needs a budget. Then you also need to have the reporting and controlling the expenses and all of this. As I said, it's not very complex, but it uh, shouldn't be a doting task. And uh, most important, uh, get along with people. 
you will find a plethora of characters, particularly in this sector, particularly in Switzerland, and um, you, you get to interact with people from everywhere. So it's important that you are open to different ways to uh, look at issues, different ways to express ideas, and uh, yeah, just to, to think of the others and to take into account uh, your 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 context and your team members. Hmm. I'm actually very glad I asked you that question because you have come up with an, a unique um, list of skills and experiences that are often untold. Um, but we we already sort of have an idea of these are sort of the skills that you would need, but no one's told us or no one's told us young people or students out there that these are the skills that you should really be working on. So thank you so much for answering that. Um, so to, to sum up what you said, um, you would say uh, project management, communication, um, a basic understanding of finances, uh, particularly uh, budgeting, for example, and um, uh, of course, getting along with people. <laughs> And uh, yeah, accepting cultural differences and empathy and indeed yeah okay that's that's a very good answer thank you so much for answering that um, what about um, language skills how important do you think uh, language skills are uh, particularly in uh, Geneva and uh, when it comes to your Euro European languages such as French. Well, in terms of uh, languages, I would say that English is a must. And again, uh, good uh, writing, it's very, very important. Um, English, however, might be not enough. And depending on your interest, you may need French, Spanish or German. Uh, I am actually currently trying to learn German. And of course, uh, Spanish has been an asset for me because I work uh, for the Latin American and Caribbean unit. Uh, so this is what I said, depending on, on your interest and the field you, you want to work, uh, you will need uh, different uh, languages. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, um, so as uh, foreign language requirements may impose hurdles to those who lack fluency or have not had the privilege to learn the target language? What do you think can be done to overcome this hurdle? Well, well, you will need to learn the languages your career prospects require. Um, it is a process and it demands time. But my recommendation would be to be aware that you don't need to speak like a native. You need to communicate correctly and with clarity. Also, uh, you have your mother tongue. And, uh, this can be also an asset, so try to take advantage of that. Okay, that's, that's very interesting and that's good to know. Uh, because um, for a lot of... Uh, foreigners who hope to work uh, in Geneva, for example, uh, French almost becomes a sort of uh, a blockade. And then um, you always assume that you have to be fluent. And then even those who actually have a good level end up not even pursuing a, uh, 
a career at a particular organization out of fear that they might not be accepted because of their level. Um, but it's very good to know that um, you just need to focus on the communication aspect of it and you don't actually need to have a native level. Um, so thank you for answering that. Um, and if shall we get to the next question? Sure. Yeah. Um, so as we are all aware, uh, Switzerland imposes visa restrictions for people outside the European Union or European economic area. And this makes it very difficult for non-Europeans to access the job market in Switzerland outside the IO sector. So keeping in mind that several organizations in the third sector here work on global issues, in what ways do you think the sector in Switzerland or Geneva can overcome this issue in order to increase diversity? Well, while the permit requirements don't seem to become more flexible in the coming years, it's also true that uh, the world dynamics are, are changing and evolving. Uh, the migration to digital platforms is increasing its pace, and uh, I think that, that that will allow more people to work for organizations they want to, regardless of the location. Uh, if, if you are a candidate and that you are applying, I will say that meanwhile focusing on your competitive advantages and maybe considering assignments as a consultant may help. Um, because as, as a consultant, uh, you can be located everywhere and uh, you can still apply for, for, for different um, mandates or assignments. And uh, that can start <laughs> opening doors. As for uh, the organizations, I, I think that the organizations are also changing and uh, becoming truly global. So I think that they are also seeing this an opportunity to uh, include more people that uh, uh, will increase diversity, which uh, it will be also uh, very positive for, for organizations and uh, for the society in general. Yeah. Um... Yes, thank you so much for saying that, uh, because it really does um, bring some hope. And uh, what you said about um, uh, considering consultancies, that's also quite interesting. And uh, that this, again, is sort of uh, an untold uh, sort of open secret that, you know, th this is an opportunity out there that uh, you can consider. Um, so thank you so much for answering that. Um, so uh, I also wanted to ask you, um, what changes have you noticed in your sector and in uh, the recruitment practices? Well, in my sector, I would say that uh, the sector has grown in uh, visibility and influence. Um, we are reaching more audiences and people in general are more aware of the issues we advocate for. Um, this sector is, in general, again, attracting more funding, which is positive and also comes with more accountability and uh, also comes with the responsibility to show impact. And again, 
um, monitoring and evaluation have become central part of the operations of the organizations in this sector. There are also new and non-traditional mechanisms to finance programs that were unavailable uh, some years ago. And uh, of course, uh, technology brings uh, opportunities and challenges because while it increases the scope of operations and uh, simplifies some processes, uh, it also demands more speed and agility and it has an impact as well on culture and practices of the organizations. As uh, for the recruitment practices, I think that uh, there is most more focus on diversity, indeed, and, and gender, uh, but also more competition among candidates because the sector has become more attractive. Mm -hmm. um... So how, how have these changes affected or, or helped you and um, what did you do to keep up with these changes? Well, uh, you have to keep an open mind, uh, to be flexible and to embrace change. Because change, particularly nowadays, it's permanent. So I have been learning as I go and I try to keep a broad scope and uh, try as well some uh, experimentation. I think that you also need uh, to have the willingness to fail because you cannot excel in every single thing. And uh, it's important not being afraid to go some steps backwards uh, in order to learn and create new opportunities. Hmm. That's interesting. So, yes. Um... Uh, keeping an open mind, remaining flexible and uh, embracing change. Because, yeah, as you said, uh, particularly this year, we can see that a lot of things are changing. And uh, <laughs> so, yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so what advice would you have for graduates and young professionals who are pursuing a career in your field? Mm, well, more uh, recommendations rather than an advice. Uh, I would say, please uh, look for opportunities to cultivate your skills and expertise. Mm -hmm. Even if those opportunities are unpaid, uh, it's very likely that this pay off in the future. Um, I, at least that was all that has been my, my experience. Mm -hmm. um, try to learn different things within the context in which you are working or uh, just operating. If you have a task, just go to the site and see how uh, your uh, colleagues are doing activities or tasks that not necessarily belong to your responsibilities. I think that it's important to look at the size and to look in front. And as I said, if you have to go some steps, some steps backwards, don't be afraid, just do it because uh, it can bring positive uh, things for you. Mm -hmm. And something very, very important, talk to people. Not only the ones uh, you usually talk to, but also beyond your uh, social circle. 
Um, but don't lose your north um, because after a couple of years, you have to put together all of your experience. And there, a um, wide range of experiences uh, has a value indeed, mm. but coherence, it's also important. Mm. That, that's very uh, good to know. Um, I'm really getting a lot of information that is, is unique and it's, it's coming. Uh, it doesn't really come from a lot of people. So thank you so much for saying this. And I, I'm very glad to find it uh, helpful. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> and yeah, as you mentioned, uh, talking to people is also quite important. And I don't think it's... Um, I don't think we need to be uh, upset that uh, about, you know, staying indoors or, and you can actually um, network via LinkedIn, for example. So yeah. That is, and regarding, yeah. regarding networking, um, it's not only about going out and sharing some drinks with, uh, you know, all of these events mm. and all of this. I think that it's also important to get interested to yeah. really try to know the other person, to know the things that they are doing and to, to find ways to cultivate that. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good to know. Um, yeah, so um, before we wrap up, um, what would be a key message that you could give to our listeners? Well, um Make sure you dominate the basics mm -hmm. and uh, be curious and creative. Uh, I, I would recommend uh, to work on identifying your competitive advantages, okay. cultivate it, and uh, learn to present it properly. It's important that when you are looking for something, you, you really manage the art of uh, presenting yourself and somehow presenting your selling points. It's not about uh, saying a lot of things, it's about some key messages yeah. that uh, stay. Just try to find the relevance of your experience or your, your knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I'm pretty sure a lot of people will find that very useful and very helpful. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Natalia, for taking the time to give us this valuable, valuable piece of advice. Um, yeah, thank you all for tuning thank in. You. Thank you very much for the invitation and for the opportunity to share my, my thoughts. I, I hope that... Uh, your audience uh, find it um, useful, at least some of the ideas. And uh, well, a pleasure to, to talk to you. Yes, I'm sure everyone will be inspired by you. Thank you so much, Natalia. And thank you all for tuning in. Firstly, um, I'm grateful to both Natalia and Erhan for their time and their valuable advice. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak on this issue. Um, I would like to mention again that although we talk about the need for diversity and inclusion in international organizations and the third sector, I must acknowledge that a lot of the questions and answers in these interviews do not address all forms of privilege and the lack thereof. In that sense, we hope that 
through this podcast, we can start to rethink the current systems in place and be more mindful of those who do not share the same privileges. When we don't have a lot of obstacles to overcome, to pursue not just a career, but a life that many can only dream of, we tend not to realize the kind of obstacles that the system has put in place to benefit the few. Not only should we educate ourselves about such obstacles, but we have a responsibility to use our privilege to dismantle such obstacles. When we claim to work on development and humanitarian issues, we first need to be aware that the very system we work in may be perpetuating the very inequalities that we hope to work against. We need to rethink the current system. An individual's place of birth or passport should not pose obstacles to their prospects of employment. And we must acknowledge that not everyone can afford unpaid internships. People need to be paid for their work, period. We need to keep in mind, and especially in recruitment practices, that not everyone is equally abled. This is important not only in the design of applications, but also in timed tests and interviews. Attention also has to be paid to the architecture of offices so that they are more accessible. Gender and sexual identities should not be an obstacle when considering management positions or any position for that matter. We must also be aware of the privileges that come with being born with certain racial and religious identities. And we must make a conscious effort to dismantle the hurdles faced by those who do not share the same privileges. When I speak of privileges and the lack thereof, these are systemic issues. So by rethinking the system, we are also rethinking the prejudices that we associate with people whose identities may differ from ours. This benefits not only individuals and communities, but also the systems of international and third sector organizations. Thank you, Madmita. I, I just want to expand a little bit on that because the concept that, that this expansion will benefit organizations, I think is a bit underrated. I, I mean, studies have shown around the world that when we work together with people who see the world differently from the way that we do, we come up with better solutions. We are more creative. We are pushed to think in different ways. And that's really important. And I, and I don't think it's quite acknowledged to the extent that it needs to be. But mostly, if we're working in development, or we're working in humanitarian areas, or we're working in peace building, we absolutely need to get past the colonial notion that somehow the Western world is bringing help and prosperity to a clueless global South. It's a completely outdated, offensive, and colonialist notion. I know that probably many people are increasing in sensitivity to this issue, but it still is not mainstream in the structure. And as Madmita said, we absolutely need to rethink the current system. I bring just quickly an example from my own country and my own background, which is that I was recently speaking with a friend who works for a peace building organization in the United States. The way that they operate is that they recruit and support activists and advocates in their own communities to develop solutions that work for their own communities. They let people and encourage people and support people to decide what's best for themselves. 
why can't we do this in the rest of the world? This requires a fundamental restructuring of the system. I think expanding expanding the, the reach of who we work with and who we hire ensures that we provide communities with what they actually need and not what we think they need. And by the way, I go into this a lot more with in my interview with Claudia Seymour, which is episode five of this series. We know that major decisions regarding the communities on the ground are taken in European or American headquarters by, of course, white men usually. Due to all of these hurdles that we've talked about, the very people the projects hope to benefit cannot take part in the decision-making process. Forgetting beneficiaries, how many people, even those who come from privileged backgrounds from these countries where the projects and interventions are meant to take place, how can they access the headquarters and participate in decision-making? If these people were included in the decision-making processes, wouldn't it be better for the project and for the organization? It just seems like common sense. So we really hope that this episode has, has helped to perhaps for some of you provide more background and, and more thinking on a topic that's already been on your mind or provided an introduction to some of you or for some of you who, who think about this constantly and, and work with these challenges every day, we hope that perhaps there's been some helpful advice from our interviewees on, on how to navigate the international system in Geneva. Above all, we really thank you for being here today, for listening, and we encourage you to share this episode uh, with the people in your community. Thank you so much. Thank you, Annika, and thank you for the opportunity again. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.